We've been going on this series titled Ascend. We're working around the theme of stepping up, uh, which is the second stanza of what I'm seeing in Ephesians, and uh, we'll go into the third one in due course. Um, We are completing one massive segment of this series, uh, looking at some key verses in Ephesians chapter 4 at this time. And uh, we're going to look uh, directly straight into our passage today, and the main passage has been Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 13. So Christ himself gave the apostles, I've tried white chalk, so hopefully this shows up on screen, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. To equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So a key verse in Ephesians there, which is uh, really uh, something to the word ascend actually came from that particular um, concept. Now, last week, from a continualist position, we looked at this one, the prophet. And uh, we explored this, uh, we looked at the, the, the modern day expression of this, how the ministry of prophetic work uh, happens in the church a bit and, and how it should be welcome. Uh, and uh, I invited some interaction online. I got a lot, largely positive feedback. It was really cool. And, and we didn't have a huge drop off in viewership. So I think you stayed with me, which is awesome to see. Going to go into what I consider the most misunderstood of all the gifts in the church. And as a result, one of the most underutilized in the church, the ascension gift of the apostle. This gets left on the shelf through cessationist theology. And look, I've coming from a continualist viewpoint, so I have to look for a way forward to actually go, how does this express itself in the church? And we leave it on the shelf sometimes because of its perceived untouchable nature you know the, the, it's the, the, we don't dare to call someone an apostle we don't dare to think apostolically because we think of it as such a high thing that we, we find it almost an elusive or we're too scared to go there at times and, and um, but I believe the Australian church is missing out on something vital if we don't explore what the role entails and if we don't explore the ministry that gets done as a result of the apostles and the apostolic in our midst. So like all the others, we're going to set the bar for, we're going to look at how Jesus sets the bar for this ministry. Uh, We're going to, um, you know, we've looked at this already. He is already the embodiment. He is the ultimate evangelist. He's definitely the good shepherd, right? He's rabbi, teacher, and he comes in prophetic nature in all that he does. So we can't just go, oh yeah, the apostolic is not Jesus either. He is. Hebrews 3, 1 says this, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. So Jesus sets the bar there. Now the word apostle means one who is sent. This refers to someone commissioned as a messenger or a delegate with full authority from the sender. In its early use, the sender was often a king or a ruler. 
Jesus was the sent one to us. And his ministry demonstrates the full authority that he, he had from the one who sent him. As we read Mark's gospel, this authority was very evident from the get-go. In just the first couple of chapters, we see the authority of Jesus being demonstrated. Um, the very first way they acknowledge the authority of Jesus is in his teaching. He spoke as someone who had authority, not like the Pharisees. He spoke in a way that the Pharisees wanted to have but couldn't. He spoke as an insider to the workings of heaven. He knew the heart of God. He knew the pathos of God. He could actually speak into things in a real way. He had authority. And people looked at him and gave him authority because they saw him as an insider to what God was doing. It's then evident in his ability to control the spiritual realm. And then we see very early in the piece, we see his ability to forgive sin. Now that is the highest God, the authority right there, forgiveness of sin. He actually makes claims to his deity right at the very word, right at the start there of his ministry in Mark's gospel there. There is no doubting his sentness. In fact, I want us to work in that word. This is a key word for us. Please Sentness. I don't know if that works in a dictionary, but it's something to add to our vocabulary now. Sentness. There is no doubting Jesus' sentness. And then, as we go into Mark chapter 3, Jesus demonstrates his authority. He demonstrates his sentness. And then going into chapter 3, we then see that he brings others into that position of sentness. Let's read this now. Mark chapter 3, verses 13 to 15. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Twelve disciples who would be set apart and sent. These are the ones known from here on in as the apostles. And, um, and in chapter 6, we see that Jesus would, in fact, send them. Uh, he would send them two by two. He would give them authority to do miracles and to preach the same message of repentance and kingdom allegiance that Jesus preaches. Then in Luke 10, we see this element of sending in play once again. Not just the 12, he sends the 12, and then after this, he sends another 72 with the same instructions. And then at the end of the gospel, we get another idea of sentness in play. Matthew gives us what is known as the Great Commission. Go into the world, preach the gospel, make disciples, baptize as you go. John offers a variant of that, is what is known as the Johannine Commission. Uh, commission. So uh, John chapter 20, verse 21, this is seen as the ultimate apostolic statement of Christ. Uh, simply says this, again Jesus said, he's, this is post-resurrection, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. For the hands and feet of Jesus to continue its work. 
Jesus, the sent one, sends us. That's the Gospels. Now we go into the rest of the church story, and we see some key things about the apostolic ministry unfold in that. Uh, first, we got the group simply known as the Twelve, all right? <laughs> the Twelve. These guys are in a realm all of their own. No doubting that whatsoever. Putting Judas aside here, these were the ones who sat at the feet of Jesus directly and were eyewitnesses of his resurrection. It's clear that these guys knew that they had something special, um, particularly when they sought to replace Judas. And we see this in Acts chapter 1. Um, Peter actually calls a, a church vote and goes, we kind of got to replace Judas here, guys. Uh, we need to, uh, yeah, we, we, there's 12 of us, Jesus called 12, we're one short, we need to pick someone up in the trade season and get someone back into the sea, side here and replenish our stock. And uh, they had two options there, but here is, uh, look, I don't think the vote to get a new apostle kind of worked. I, I think they made a few decisions in Acts that I'd kind of scratch my head at. But the criteria that Peter sets for the 12 is actually quite clear here. He says in Acts chapter 1, it needed to be someone who was with them from go to woe. Someone from John the Baptist to the resurrection. Someone who had sat at the feet of Jesus and sat under the same three-year apprenticeship that they had had. Someone who could actually share their DNA properly. And Matthias was the guy they actually appointed there. It's the, these guys that provided the much-needed leadership and doctrine for the church. These guys played key roles in endorsing new churches. Uh, Samaria first, Antioch next. They oversaw the establishment of proper orderly leadership. Uh, they appointed elders. They eventually created the role of the deacon that the people were able to fill. They led the charge in working through the Jerusalem Council when elements of the law started clashing with the ministry of the Spirit. They did extensive itinerant ministry. And through Peter, the first Gentile believers were added to the church. We also read that they took the brunt of the punishment in those earliest days too. They did a fair bit of jail time. They got the most beatings. These are the ones singled out for all the wrong reasons as much as the good ones. The 12 were on a completely different level and rightly revered as such. But are they the only apostles in Scripture? Did apostolic ministry occur in the absence of the twelve? Did it specifically need their endorsement, their rubber stamp, for that ministry to be legitimate? I suggest not. One can obviously look at Paul as a prime example of that. He was definitely not qualified the way Peter prescribed but still very much considered an apostle, all right? He's the primary church planter to the Gentiles that the church needed. He was the right guy for that. He, he, was, he, was, um, you know, he grew up in a university city in the Roman Empire. He was educated as a Pharisee in the Hebrew way. He was Greek-speaking. He was a Roman citizen. He was a completely special case for the task that was at hand there, and he could have actually done some apostolic work that the other 12 simply could not do. 
In 1 Corinthians 15, he calls himself one abnormally born and the least deserving to be called an apostle. He knew he was a pretty special case as well. He's not alone in the scriptures, though, with the term apostle being used somewhat broadly in other passages throughout the church world. Acts 14 tells us that Barnabas is being called an apostle. Alongside Paul in the first missionary journey. Why are they calling him an apostle? Because he and Paul were sent in the first trip. They were sentness in play here. They were sent ones to go and actually do missionary work in Asia Minor there. We've got James, the brother of Jesus, made an apostle later in the piece. Romans chapter 16, verse 7 says this, it's, just a, it's, a, it's a bit of a hall of fame of, of, of people that Paul is greeting here. And this is what he writes, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Now, this is more than merely being liked by the twelve. This would hardly do justice to the greeting that is being shared here. But instead, most scholars identify these people as well-regarded apostles. And they've been greeted in the Roman church. Again, had no apostolic founder. I won't make a big deal of it here, but there is a growing body of scholarship around this passage that kind of goes just like um, Priscilla and Aquila, we may well have husband and wife in play here, that Junior, outstanding among the apostles, is also a female. Then we go into this last one that I'm going to have you guys read now. Revelation, chapter 2, verse 1 to 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write this, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them to be false. I chose this verse for a careful thing here. You see, we need to remember that Jesus is addressing a church here in a vision very, very deep into the first century, as in the 90s. The only member of the 12 still alive is John. It's highly unlikely that any other key church leader who sat at Jesus' feet up to 30 AD is alive and well and residing in Ephesus at this time. If the apostles were a 12 and done thing, the wording of this letter should be pretty different. As in, well done for dismissing everyone claiming to be an apostle out of hand. Instead, we see Jesus commending them, to, for testing them, seeing what they have before drawing judgment, before actually using discernment to determine the gifting that these people are claiming to have. Yes, there would be false apostles, and we see this statement being made through the epistles, but apparently not all would be. So as in all the other ministries, I hold the belief, friends, that an apostolic expression is still a relevant and active ministry going past that church age and therefore continuing into the modern church age. Now, I fully believe the 12 
the big guys. These guys are without equal. All right, I fully believe that there is no more scripture or doctrinal authority to be penned or crafted. I'm certain the gospel as we know it has been wrestled with well and truly enough that the creeds we now have and all the church fathers and all that stuff that has been done is done. And I don't think there's any way we can kind of maneuver it to have suddenly changed all of a sudden in the 21st century. But I do believe the broader sense of apostolic ministry is to continue. And I see we've got this broader sense with Andronicus and Junia and Barnabas and these guys. Um, with these guys, I actually see a bit of a template for how this type of ministry can continue in the modern church. To be honest, someone has to keep us in our state of sentness. Someone has to actually keep us in that place that understands the authority we have and, and keeps us moving into a place of being sent. When we consider the word church or when we consider the word ecclesia, we often think of gathering. We think of being called out ones. Um, you know, we think of making decisions and reaching consensus. In our modern setting, we think of church votes and getting people into key roles in the life of the church. But we don't always think sentness. The Australian Baptist movement to the east of us is right now beginning to address this in pretty awesome ways. For the church to lean into sentness, an apostle needs to be present to help that along. The apostle ensures the gathered believers become a movement, not a club. They seek to extend the faith. Evangelism is definitely part of this. Uh, you know, pastoring and, and shepherding and, and prophetic ministry, all of that is too. But the apostle pulls all this together and directs all that energy into a culture of extension and multiplication. They are skilled at building the overall health of a congregation. They mobilize people in a key way. They tap into the diversity on hand. They network widely. They lead the church into new visions and contexts of ministry, in particular church planting. A local congregation that has a healthy zeal and plan for planting other local churches can be considered an apostolic church. A local congregation that is motivated for both their neighbours and the nations can also be considered an apostolic church. I've come to a position after living here for a few years and after interacting with the, the ministers and after seeing the potential we actually have in this city. I'm convinced this city and its churches probably should be the ones to be considering its apostolic responsibility to the wider region. I believe we as a congregation are well positioned to consider that for our future too. This actually has been part of our heritage. 50 years ago, Millicent Baptist was launched. There are opportunities from Cassidy to Tail and Bend that the church is of Mount Gambia could be exploring. 
where the healthy DNA of our local congregations could be grafted into other neighbourhoods up the road. There are neighbourhoods in other nations we could be significantly partnering with now that key relationships are starting to form. Now, that doesn't mean I'm getting up here calling myself an apostle. It's not how it works. You don't take authority like that. That's wrong. And I think it's pretty arrogant to do that. But I do believe that there is the potential for an apostolic expression from Mount Gambia Baptist Church. I don't believe that's beyond us. And I do believe that there are apostolically gifted people in our midst. And that our church has a bit of a gift set that would reflect an apostolic leaning. I also feel this. If it's not us, for that greater region I just described, then who will it be? All right, we actually have these five gifts laid out. We've taken the time to explain how these five gifts could be expressed in our midst. We'll read the last few verses of this section as we close this morning. So, um, and then I'm just going to leave this, these last two verses, three verses now, and then Peter will pick it up next week. It says this, Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. That's what these five gifts yield. Mature, stable, informed believers. Believers who are able to discern between right and wrong in biblical teaching. There's a big gulf in biblical literacy in the West and, and I think we need these five gifts in order to actually help us stay on track with that. It yields people who can spot a false teacher a false shepherd, a false prophet, and even a false apostle from a mile away. And it yields people becoming more like Christ, being built up together in love and truth. Friends, we need all five of these gifts to be identified. We need these five ministries mobilized for the church to grow into the powerful force we're called to be. It's the fullness of Christ, the hands and feet of Jesus in action to its full potential. It's the body running with all of its systems in a state of health and vitality. Let's dare to mobilize. Let's dare to step up into the gifts. And let's dare to minister in the most complete way that we're able to as a church of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.